So welcome, guys. Um, we are simulcasting on Clubhouse, which <clears throat> I hope everybody can hear us on that. But I got a special guest that I'm about to introduce who's uh, amazing, and all y'all know her as well. Um, but I want to say first, thank you very much for joining again. And I'm going to talk about some general things like I was just talking about, about thinking big and outlook. I'm going to go over a couple things about how we can organize our practices again to work on the 20% of cases that make 80% of our money and get rid of the 80% of cases that make 20% of your money and how you can shift from stopping those countless hours on the 80% that make you no money and shifting that time to working on the cases that do make you money. Always respecting your clients, but understanding that Kenny Rogers is the best advisor for life and for litigation. You got to know when to hold him and you got to know when to fold him, right? You got to know when to walk away. And sometimes you got to know when to run. And it is great advice in everything we do. So I want to introduce my uh, great friend who's just, you guys all know her, Erica Chavez is coming in and she's going to sit here next to me. Um, we are we are broadcasting from San Diego and Erica, why don't you come on over and I want to talk for a minute. See if we push this back a little Do bit. Do I get the big seat? Come oh on. my Lord, go. I got the big seat. So everybody, Wait. everybody knows the great Erica. She is for <laughs> the, for all of the, the TBI, uh, med legal, the seminars, and, and we've known each other for a long time. She and Gina have been friends for a long time. And I asked her to come on for about 10 or 15 minutes to talk to you guys about what is something that I think uh, is so important. That book that, um, that Ryan from Louisiana recommended to me about the one big thing oh, talks funny. about thinking big. And I was talking to Erica about how important it is that with goals, one of the reasons you write goals is it pulls you out of the mundane day-to-day, week-to-week stuff, and it allows us to take a step back so that we can think big, right? And the biggest issue, I heard this yesterday, I was saying, why don't you write to the CEO of that company? And they're like, well, they're never going to answer my note. And I said, well, you're right if you don't write to them. And the idea is about always thinking, Charles, I love that you got a video camera, brother. Good job. <laughs> always thinking big. And I said that to Erica, and she has taken uh, firms, BD&J, from the start to one of the largest firms in the country, and it was about thinking big. So, Erica, could you just kind of help us think about what it's like to think big and why it's so important? Sure, absolutely. So I think Mike's on point. It's about thinking big and not thinking about what's in front of you and always thinking about what I want to be five years from now and work backwards, right? So when I started at BDNJ, there were like seven employees. I think I was number seven, 14 person they had ever hired in the term of whatever. And now we're a little bit over 200 employees and like 25 lawyers. And the idea was, where do you want to be in five years? And back then, BDA wanted to franchise. That was their idea. And they're like, we loved that. We'd love to be a Morgan, but, mm, you know, we're seven people. And so it was, okay, where can we realistically be in five years? Step forward a little bit more and then just build backwards. So for us, it was immediately what you said, building seeds, right? Planting seeds everywhere. So get your, your own clients, start gathering that database. They weren't doing that at the time. So everyone you meet, you should absolutely be building that database. Get into a CRM. HubSpot's free. Like you can have up to like 2,000 people in there for free before you have to pay them a dollar. So immediately, every single client or potential client that calls your office, anyone you meet at an event, anywhere, anything, put them in there. And when you have the money, when you finally have some money, start direct mail to them. Mail them something four times a year. The biggest piece of advice I can say, I actually, well, one thing you did, I heard that you were the very first lawyer to have a booth at Kella. I was. Everybody else like thought these booths were for vendors. And you, where did that come from? Because I think that's huge what you did. 
So way back when, um, believe it or not, now now there's a sponsor for everything from the carpet to the air at Pella, <laughs> right? It's like, hey, I'm the carpet sponsor. But back 14 years ago, 13 years ago. I think BD&J is the carpet sponsor. Buddy. Right. <laughs> there was a Thursday, a Friday, and a Saturday party, and there was one sponsor for each. And the Saturday sponsor dropped out, and they couldn't find a sponsor. They couldn't. And I was, I was going to be... I don't know, treasurer or, oh, I just won trial lawyer of the year. I just won trial lawyer of the year. And so I had some cash, right? Because everybody now wants a piece of the, the, surprise you still have the big guy, right? (laughs) After that. And so I said, I'll sponsor the Saturday party. And so I'm looking at the contract and it comes with a free booth. And I was like, eh, that's cheesy, uh, whatever. And Somebody said, Mike, didn't you just complain that, you know, you just won this award and half the people know your name, but don't know what you look like. And the other half know what you look like, but don't know your name. I said, you're right. I'm going to get a booth, put a 12 by 12 photo of my face with my name at it. And I'm going to kiss babies and shake hands in front of this booth. Wow. First year I do it, right? Competitors (laughs) that shall not be named. First day, Thursday. This is such a cheese ball thing. Second day. I can't believe this works. Third day. Hey, did this pay off? I had two years. No comp. Year three. Panish Girardi, Dornick, Greenberg. (laughs) (laughs) And now the law firms can't even get a booth if they wanted to. But again. um, You went left. Everyone's going right. You went left. And it's really just a function of opening yourself up to the possibility of taking chances. And I did not have a fear so much. Uh, I, I really didn't give a shit if people thought I was cheesy at the time. And now at 53, I could care fucking less <laughs> of people what they think of me, right? But it allows you to take those shots. It allows you to plant those seeds. And what's the worst thing that could have happened? You lost, you lost the $500 that you spent for the booth. Maybe. I closed it right. And it doesn't work. But you did great branding right there. Exactly. So it was still a win. But you got names of people. You went into spaces that people don't really think of. I know one thing I've done at BD&J is I thought that BD&J didn't have a, we didn't have a litigator at the time. We didn't have a trial lawyer. So there was no way for BD&J to go compete in the like trial lawyers. And so I still had to find a way to get referrals, like B2B referrals to the firm. And so we went to the work comp space because it didn't matter. They don't know who Panish or Girardi or Mike are. And so they just know that someone's going to pay them a fee. And so we went with a very aggressive fee uh, split with them and we offered them a 50% fee split. And we went and we went to the work comp space and we're, I don't know, probably a few years, we're probably for six years in at this point, we do about 50 referrals a month from them. So that's, I mean, when go into other spaces, Mike went into another space and he just made a spot for himself. Same thing with TBI. Nobody was going. TBI was sexy six years ago, seven years ago. Trust me, guys. Like, nobody cared about it. There, The TBI conference used to be 50 people. I think AJ Gole, you used to go to it, I think, back when it was like 30, 50 people. There was nobody there. Arash. Like, nobody went to this conference. Now we have 4,500 tickets sold. So it's like, it's a very different, um, it's a different time. And you can make that space for you. Go anywhere. So let me, let me say this. We got, I just I wanted to, I wanted you to talk about that, but I also wanted to put her on the spot and say, can, if anybody wants to talk to you and get some good advice, can they reach out to you? Anytime. Right? So what we're going to do is put in the chat. See, I didn't even know. Cool. If somebody wants to reach you, you Erica. I'll give you my cell phone number. And I am more than happy to share anything I've got for you. So I got two things left. First thing, when I said to Erica, just before we started, I said, can I talk about BD&J and how you started? And her first statement was, do you want me to talk about another firm? And it's interesting because it goes right along. And I was like, well, yeah, of course. (laughs) And people are like, but aren't they your competition? Aren't they? And I really believe that positive thinking about if you take care of your business, there is no competitor to you. Now, I get it that if there's the, you know, the Kobe Bryant crash, there was a feeding frenzy and there's competition over that case. But we're not talking about you being successful on one case, one week, 
one month. Everything is about a long period of time. And that is about consistent behavior over time. So your competition is not the one time, one day, one case. Your competition is with you being able to do it over and so over true. and right. So true. Right? That's ex- that was the work comp space. And we got thing- zero cases for the first two seminars. Exactly. <laughs> and the thing is, is if you do that over time, you are one of the 10 out of a hundred that do it five out of a hundred that do it. So everybody on this call has the ability to build a wonderful career, an amazing career. Y'all got through law school. You're all smart. You all, most of you have your own firms. You know how to do it. Now it's all a function of consistent execution, period, paragraph. It is not about taking one case, right? If you call Erica and you send a case to BD&J, great. I'm happy for that, right? Because I don't live on one case or two case or whatever. And I know that what's more important to me is to share information, it help people. And if you help unconditionally, it will come back to you a thousand fold. So I was happy to do this. And the last thing I got, database. I talk about database. Can you tell what you used HubSpot in a CRM program? Tell us quickly what CRM is. And if we don't have the money for that right now, how do we start keeping our contacts so that so, we can reach yeah. out? Yeah. So CRM means client relationship management software, right? So it's just client relationship. I lived on Airtable. I still use Airtable. TBI Med Legal is entirely planned on Airtable. It is like Google and Excel had a baby and it's a beautiful baby. It's not an ugly baby. So it's like, it can move all kinds of things around. It's great. But HubSpot's free for the first few thousand. Like if you want to use HubSpot, you can. Eventually you're going to have to pay for it. But use Airtable. I love Airtable. And Constant Contact is another thing. Um, Email people. Email everybody. Like it doesn't cost you anything. So last thing, when you get contact information, Mm -hmm. what is the most important different parts of contact? Is it email, cell, cell, address? The moment I meet somebody... I ask them for their cell phone number and I literally will not let them leave me until I get their cell phone number. I don't ask for their office number. They hand me a card. They try all these things. I'm like, no, 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 I don't do that. Just give me your cell. And I text them right there because then you're immediately in that conversation. And tomorrow it's now at the top of my list. And I now know, and then I've been putting them, um, there's a thing called community that you can get a phone number that is not your actual phone number. And you can start to group people on your, and it's free. Actually, I think it's $1.99 or something. And what's the second most important information after the Email address. Email address. More than your address. Oh, I don't care about that. I'll find them. I'll find your state bar number. I'll find you. Okay. (laughs) I will stalk you. So So, that's it. Erica, thank you so much. Thank you. guys. Her number's in in the chat. Nice seeing you guys. Awesome. Awesome that you guys are here. I'm going to listen to the rest of this. This was awesome. We're talking about some good stuff here, girl. You better stay. (laughs) By the way, on that last thing, um, I, Edward, who works with me and Gina, uh, figured out the QR codes. And, and obviously with uh, the restaurants now, QR codes became a lot more acceptable. They've been around forever, but everybody, nobody used them. And now you go, you need a menu, you do your QR code. If you want to reach out to me, Edward on here, let us help you. It's free, I think to create QR codes. And so Erica's talking about grab the phone number. I have on my, I don't even know where my cell phone is now, but, um, oh, is you can do a QR code that will you call up on your phone and the other person simply puts their camera on it. Don't take a photo. They don't have to take a photo. And up comes something they click and it puts all of your information in their phone. They just hit save, and then I say, scan it. You just got all my information. Call me or text me right now. Right? Free one app is called QRME. Q-R-M-E. It's a free app on the App Store. You put in whatever you want to put in, and it'll create a QR code that comes up on your phone or that you can send to people. And I learned this at a Vegas, at the Vegas convention. One of my young associates knew about it 
And I did it at the convention. And then every booth I went, I just had the QR code and they scanned it and I got everybody's information and they got all my information. It's free. It's easy. It's just a, and again, it's cool. So if people don't want to give you their number, they will because they like this cool looking thing, right? So again, once you get it, then you put it into your, your, your contacts. All right. Any questions before we move on to the next? Oh, any questions on Clubhouse either? Sorry. Raise your hand if you do. This is cool, right? Any hand raises? No. All right. Oh, we got one. Hold on. So Eric Paris is on Clubhouse. Let's see if we can make this work. Eric, you got a question? You there? He's got to unmute his mic. Yeah, now you go ahead, Eric. All right, I was talking. Okay, I just wanted to say good morning. You're awesome. This is fantastic. And you and Gina are fire. Thank you so much, Mike. <laughs> Thanks, brother. All right. All right. I don't know if y'all could hear that, but he said we're fire. So, you know. Um, so let's switch gears. And I want to talk about a couple of things. And I know we're going long uh, a little bit. <laughs> In no particular order. Um, I just did a mediation on Wednesday and I want to talk about that mediation because we're $25 million apart, but we're in the eight figures already. Right. And I want to talk about how it leads up to that and that those things apply in almost every mediation. And I thought it was important to talk about it because it leads into how you make demands and how important those demands are. And it's part of the reason I wrote it into the litigation guidelines. And we got Mark, who's a defense lawyer here, who can tell me if I'm full of crap or not about how it works. But I want to start with saying that mediation, right, has to be prepared for. And you have to prepare the defense for your mediation, whether it's prelit, which I've Pre-lit mediations just mean you've telegraphed that you're willing to take less than the case is worth. That's what I think, right? But in a litigation mediation, the most important thing, the two most important things, is that before you agree to mediate, you have to have determined what the policy limits are, and you have to have demanded, right? Because whatever the policy is, if you mention mediation before demand, then by definition, you have agreed to go to mediation and take less than the policy. And even if you are willing to take less than the policy, the ceiling that you start at at mediation is less if you haven't previously made a policy demand and in my guidelines, when they don't pay the policy, you make an above policy demand. Okay. Now, there's exceptions, right? If you got a $10 million policy and your case is worth 150 grand, you're not making a $10 million policy demand, right? But for a lot of cases where there is, where you think legit the case at trial could be worth the policy or more, you always want to, when they say mediation, you're like, nah, don't even talk about it till you make a policy demand, they blow it, and you go above. So here's a scenario. Let's take a million-dollar policy, okay? If you agree to mediation without making a policy demand and then an above number before mediation, the insurance company will read that million-dollar policy case when you agree to mediation as already you're willing to take 750 700 650 and when they negotiate it will be off of even an unstated number of 750 instead with the same case same facts whatever you made a million dollar policy demand they blow it you make a 1.7 million dollar demand and then you mediate, you have a couple of moves in the one, seven, one, five, one, four, 
And even though they're never going to pay above the policy at the mediation, you have changed the dynamic of when you're talking, how the numbers are that you're talking. And in a case like that, just by making the demand and the over demand before mediation is mentioned may get you with the same exact case to $300,000 more money for the same case. Okay. Second, when you mediate, you have to understand, especially on bigger cases. Remember we talked about defense lawyers and insurance adjusters can do nothing without information that's digestible, but it has to be digested by the people above them and on bigger cases by a couple of levels above them. So if you bring your life care plan to the mediation, it is irrelevant to the mediation because they need to have that information, the how meds, life care plan, all of the records, any kind of voc rehab reports, at least a month or two before the mediation because it's got to be digested one, two, three levels, right? Not save your powder thinking that you can drop a bomb on them at mediation and it make a hill of beans difference, right? It won't. The last thing I'll say is that we believe there's a code of civil procedure and, you know, well, it says I can answer discovery in 30 days plus mailing. So I'm not going to answer my discovery until 35 days from now when you could have answered it tomorrow, right? Or you could have produced documents or whatever. Well, I got a mediation in four months and therefore I'm going to, I'll talk to the defense lawyer at the mediation. And we have lost the art of picking up the damn phone and calling the other side. And I cannot tell you, it doesn't work every time, right? But I cannot tell you how many times I can call a Mark and say, hey, Mark, we got a mediation in two months. Is there anything you need? Is there anything you don't have that any questions that you guys have that I can help you answer? Or I'll say, hey, are you coming with authority? Hey, what's going to happen here? I've had some mediations where I've had people that I've had good relationships with. And they're like, Mike, if you come in and demand this, it'll probably go to here. You go to here, here, and we'll settle in the middle. And if that was acceptable to me, I just had a pre-mediation mediation. And the only thing that was required for me to get that information was to ask. Thinking big, thinking outside the box, not worrying about how to look if it's if it's acceptable with bound, right? Sometimes yields wonderful, amazing results. But do not expect a mediation if you've never talked to the defense, you got no idea if they're coming with one dollar or one million dollars. You haven't prepped, talked to them, been expectations that you're gonna be successful over and over and over again in mediation. When I ask people who come to me with, with cases and are, oh, I got a mediation in a couple of months, a couple of weeks, I'm gonna see what happens and if it doesn't settle, I'll bring you in. And I'm like, well, what do you think's gonna happen? Oh, I don't know, I'll find out at mediation. I'm like, I'll get that case. Cause it's not gonna settle, right? It is not gonna settle for anything you want because they haven't done the work. You should not go into a mediation with no idea what's gonna happen. Now, no disrespect to my defense brethren, but defense lawyers lie their ass off to you, right? I'm coming with authority. We're gonna be in good faith. Oh, I think it's got a good chance of settling. And then every one of us has had that experience where they offer you chicken shit, right? We all have, but, and that's not gonna change, right? Leopards don't change their spots and defense lawyers, those leopards just, some of them are not going to change their spots. However, you have a much, much, much higher likelihood of getting money that is accepted at mediation. One, when you make the demands before and two, a month, month and a half, two months before you're giving the documents, the records, the life care plans, 
the videos that they have to digest on a couple of levels, have a powwow kind of round table to come to the mediation with authority. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Any questions about any of that? Any hand raising on Clubhouse? So now I have to the defense lawyer in our room. Sorry, Mark, I'm picking on my ass. Can you hear me? Yeah, no, you're coming in fine, Mike. What, what I will say, um, some people on this call may be too young, but if you remember the original RoboCop movie, you had RoboCop, who's this agile, functional badass. And for the most part, that's defense firms and their, their lead trial attorneys like myself. Uh, and then if you remember the RoboCop movie, they tried to replace him with Ed 209, the slow, clunky, cumbersome robot who couldn't even navigate stairs. A lot of times that's the insurance carrier. So everything that Mike says is absolutely on point. I could look at your guys' life care plan, uh, economic plan, and, and tell the carrier, you know, within seven minutes, here's what the case is worth. Check back two months later, the reserve bill's at 75000 It's still at 75000 So get it to me as quickly as possible. Uh, allow me to turn something around within a day, within a week. Uh, and it has to go up the levels. And some of these poor claim reps have three, 400 files in litigation. So until you're absolutely chirping in their ear and you hit them with a policy limits demand and you send them a fuck you letter, the policy's open, you don't wake them up. They're just sitting there going, okay, I got 10 other files on fire, make it 100 other files on fire, and I, I just can't get to this. you got to make the noise, uh, notwithstanding what the defense attorney may be doing, uh, to get them to actually acclimate. Because there's so many layers of authority at an insurance carrier. Uh, when I get in a policy limits demand, you know, I, I represent 32 carriers. I try within 48 hours to get them a letter saying, here's what's going on. I'm copying my insured. I'm copying the head of the, the entire claims department and say, this is what I'm going to do. Here's what I need to do. I'm going to ask for an extension. They're going to tell me to pound sand and we're going to paper the file. A lot of other firms are, are overwhelmed and they don't do that. And, and your policy limits demand lapses to your benefit. Uh, but my point being is, a lot of times you may convince the middle layer that it's a policy limits case. Then I call it the Donkey Kong effect. It goes up to the next layer. And that person used to practice law in Florida. I was a lawyer, a Florida lawyer for 10 years. They then whack and they go, no, I'm not going to reserve this at 750. You're back down to 500. So a lot of times that you're climbing that Donkey Kong ladder, you got some gorillas here and there. That's, that's our problem. So I have relationships with the people at the top of the food chain going, look, can you go over the head of the middle manager because I'll tell you why it's a limits case or why it's not a limits case. But no, everything that Mike says is, is absolutely on point. Give us everything you got as soon as you possibly can. Don't hide the ball. You show up to mediation where you don't share your brief. Uh, that's not going to be productive. I've never done a confidential brief in 28 years. Uh, if you got a life care plan from Jan Rohan, give it to me as soon as you can. Uh, don't dump it on me the night before. It's it's going to, you know, just be a fart in a church and no one's going to even take a look at it. Uh, but yeah, work it up um, so that when we come to the mediation, there's no surprises. We know that, okay, you're going to say, you know, we want the limits or the policies open and, and stuff like that. I can be agile like RoboCop, but I'm just telling you, a lot of people that carry up, you got a lot of Ed 209s over there. Uh, and you'll call them up a week before and go, so what do we got this file reserved yet? Oh, it's still at 150. Why the fuck's at 150? I've been telling you to, you know, to increase it to limits for, for two months. I, I know, I know, I'm, I'm just busy. So you, you got to be patient, but you also got to be the squeaky wheel and just keep pounding us. Because I don't, I don't ever ignore any of those letters. Uh, for me to do that's malpractice. Well, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to make a couple comments and I got one more question for Mark. But you remember how we talked about the defense needs information. They have the money. And to get the money, they have to have the information. And you just heard another, again, how these adjusters and defense lawyers many times are overwhelmed with work, right? And so not only do you have to give them the information, you have to give it to them in a digestible, easily understandable way because giving them all the medical records in a PDF that's 4,000 sheets of paper does not help them in any way. Right? A life care plan that is 5 billion pages long and doesn't have a summary doesn't help anybody. 
But I see, well, we, I gave you all the shit. I gave it to you, whatever. It's got to be in a digestible, digestible way. And I love the idea of exchanging briefs. And most people are like, oh, I can't do that. Well, you can have a brief for the defense and you can have a brief for the mediator. But look, especially experienced counsel, mediators, judges have seen case after case after case after case. I think it is counterproductive when you, you use words in your brief like this is a heinous accident of catastrophic event. Ten point. I mean, when I hear that, click, judge, click, defenders, click. I mean, come on, right? They wouldn't be in mediation. We wouldn't be in a litigation. If you've given them a million-dollar life care plan, you don't need to add the word hyenas to that life care plan, right? It actually takes away. But the last thing I wanted to say was, Mark, some of us do settlement videos. We do uh, these, you know, what I guess they're called a settlement video. One, do you guys even look at them? And two, how long should they be to get you to look at them? And are they effective? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that gives them a preview of what could happen when you got 12 strangers in a box. Uh, anything that, you know, sobers up a carrier or defense counsel and alerts them, hey, this is what's coming. I'm absolutely going to watch. I'd say keep it 15 minutes and less. Uh, but I've had those on a lot of my sex abuse trials and uh, in, in, in the pretrial mediations where they go, hey, Here's the day in the life we're going to show you. And it is doom and gloom. Uh, and it can change a lot of perspectives. And I'll tell you this, on this mediation that I'm in, and we're obviously still in it, and it's a it's a big case. I mean, it's a multi-figure case. You know what my settlement video was? When I first met the clients and I first went to their home, I took video. Uh, and I took it in small doses. And I sent it to the defense lawyer, who I know. Right up the, and that was my settlement video. But the point was not how slick it was. The point was to give some idea to the other side of who who these people are. That's why I say they need pre-accident photo video, but post-accident photo video. Not a billion of them, but something that is legitimately representative of who your client is. And I'll tell you, most people say, especially older. Older clients go, I don't have any photos, but they got 60 portraits on their wall. And you got to either tell them, go take a photo off the wall or go to their house. Going to a client's house is like gold mine. You will see things as a trained eye that they won't see. They're like, I don't have a picture of me and my family. And it's literally on the wall next to them. Any older a client that's got teenagers has a billion videos and photos of their family in the pool, at the parties, at the whatever. You got to be a little more proactive about how do I get that stuff, not only from our client, but from their relatives at the family reunion or the wedding or their kids taking video a thousand times a minute of the family. And those are all good things to provide. Again, digestible though. Sending four hours of video is not helpful. So on that, any questions about that? Anything on Clubhouse, raise your hand. Mark, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. So the last topic today, and again, I really, I love how we are, you know, a community and um, I, you know, I, I said earlier with, uh, with having Erica on about trying to help. And I, you know, I have two mottos in my firm that I started when I opened my firm and it, I don't know where it started from. My, my parents were religious and my dad was a minister and, and a teacher and my mom was a teacher. And I guess I, it works for me. And the two mottos, the first one was to give. And I've always been a big believer in giving unconditionally. Right? And I want to talk about that for a minute and how it applies to our practices. Um, but first of all, 
everybody here is a wonderful human being. I, I know most of you personally. Um, and we all have time. You know, if you take, again, 83, our average age, minus your current age, times it by 365, that's on average how many days we have left. Right? And most people, when they do that, and I think we did that a, a couple of weeks ago, go, oh, shit, I got 11,000 days left. I got 12,000 days left. My life is over, right? And then most people, after about a day or two, start to realize that that's actually a gift. It is not a negative. It's a positive. And the reason it's usually a positive is because then you start to prioritize because you have a finite number that you, you know that you have to deal with. And therefore, you can organize your life better and make choices. And I think that one of those choices should be in there, at least it works for me, is to give. And by giving unconditionally, the thing that I have found over my life is that the thing that keeps us from giving, giving, right? Why don't you give to every homeless guy on the corner? Because the first thing you say is, well, he's going to take advantage of me by going to buy booze. So the reason you don't give to that person who may use it for food is because you don't want to feel taken advantage of. You don't want to feel like what you're doing doesn't make a difference. And what that has happened to me was, and I was the same way, once you make it unconditional, you know that if you give to 10 people, that maybe two or three of them are going to take advantage of you. But it's unconditional. You don't need anything back from it. And it allowed me to give consistently. Right. And I believe that. And so my my motto, one of my mottos is to give unconditionally, ask for nothing back. And I have found that when you do that, you get back a thousand fold. That if you love, you give love. If you want money, and I know this sounds counterintuitive, if you want money, you give money. If you want respect, give respect. Oh, Mike, you got to earn my respect. <laughs> if you push that too hard, probably I don't want to be around your ass, right? And so try it. And I, I just wanted to remind people that. And the second motto that I use in my firm is, in victory, be humble, and in defeat, be gracious. And again, that is don't burn your bridges, don't stick it in people's faces, and congratulate people when, if they've beaten you or they've done a job that, congratulate Erica Chavez if she gets the BDJ case that I wanted. Congrats. Because I know it's not just about that one thing. And lastly, I will say is people tell me now, especially since I got my beautiful Gina in my life. Mike, you seem so happy. I'm content. I'm not always happy, but you seem like you're comfortable. And I got to tell you, for me, at some point, the prioritization became clear to me. And I realized that as long as I keep doing my thing, my thing consistently, I can have anything I want. So can everybody here. And that's why I talk about goals, because goals make you think about prioritizing. That's why I talk about how many days you have to live, because when you go to that exercise, you start thinking about prioritizing. Are we all perfect? Hell no. Do we do it right 99% of the time? No. Who cares, though? It does not matter if we get everything on our list. It doesn't matter if you get to the top of the mountain because you never will. There are no U-Hauls on the back of hearses. And so when you think about those things, at least for me, it allowed me to prioritize what's important in my life. And I, I only tell you that because it has made me feel so good that I hope that you guys can find some benefit from it too. And I say that because... The last thing I want to talk about is I help a lot of firms, young firms, uh, pre-lit firms figure out stuff. And I was talking to a pre-lit firm a couple of days ago in their whole office and they're all here. And I gave them some advice that I want to give to you guys. They've already started implementing it and it's already improved their practices. 
And I want to tell you guys what it was, and it's not very long. And I started with the analogy that I, that I said something about today, and I know I've talked about it in the past, about leopards don't change their spots, right? And in our life, we deal with leopards all the time. And I, bear with me for a minute. This, this will make sense. In our relationships, our spouse, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, somebody we go out on a date with is a leopard. Uh, when we're hiring people and they come in to interview, they're a leopard. When you hire a contractor to do work on your house, they're a leopard. When you deal with an insurance company or a defense lawyer, they're a leopard. And each one of those leopards has a whole bunch of spots. Now, when you meet them or you deal with them, you don't get to see all their spots. But most often it is that if you can see one or two of their spots, you kind of figure out all the rest of the spots are the same. Now, what do I mean by that? When you have an interview of somebody and you want to hire them and they show up late, you don't hire them, right? They could be a great, great employee and they could have just caught stuck in traffic. But what we all know intuitively is that leopard that has the coming to an interview late spot, those other spots are usually, they don't, they're not very motivated. They're probably not a good employee. They probably don't prioritize well. They probably can't organize very well. And more often than not, the leopard who's late, those are what those other spots are, right? When you hire a contractor and he or she overcharges you, they may be great. They may have made a mistake, but more often than not, when we get cheated by somebody and we see that spot, we can kind of figure out the other spots on that leopard. Insurance companies are great at figuring out what kind of leopard each one of us is. And so when they, insurance company, sees you have a case in prelit longer than three to six months, or that you file right before the statute, they go, I know what kind of leopard that is. Because the leopard that has the spot that files right before the statute, the other spots are more likely than not, they won't go to trial, they won't spend money on the case, we wait them out and they'll take lowball offers. Does that make sense? So when people come up with Excuses like this firm did, as I'm going through their cases pre-lit, so many of their cases they've had for a year, 12, 13, 14 months, and they haven't filed. And they're like, but that's because they put us in SIU or on a rear-end accident. They said that the plaintiff stopped short and was 20% at fault. Have you all had those cases? And when I linked to them, as I said, that's because they figured out that you are the type of firm, the leopard, that won't fight, won't go to trial, won't do whatever. And you are telegraphing, even unintentionally, to a carrier, to a defense lawyer, that that's the kind of leopard you are. By doing these things, you may think you have good excuses. Oh, they're still treating. Oh, I, you, uh. But what they have figured out is that that person who makes those excuses for whatever reason, when they do these types of things in their cases, we're not going to offer them full value. We're going to starve them out. Which is why I keep preaching about as soon as you figure out that pre-lit adjuster is not going to give you value that's necessary, get it into litigation. Because that tells the other side the kind of leopard you are. And a firm three, a uh, uh, couple months ago did this and they filed all of their pre-lit cases that they got an inkling that weren't going to be uh, treated fairly. They settled 35% of their cases in a month because they're telling the other side, I'm not that type of leopard. And so here's the exercise I asked them to do. And this is an exercise I would ask each of you to do. Some, it's going to be more effective than others, but especially if you have a lot of pre-lit cases. So if you take how many cases you have, go into a room, buy butcher paper or, or tape some paper up on the wall 
or have a couple of whiteboards. And all I want you to do is I want you to write the name of the case in different categories, different colors. In one color, in, on one side of the room, any case that has been in your office for more than a year and a half and you haven't filed it yet. Okay, Not the age, but how long you've had it. And then do it in, let's say, red. In blue, write the names of all your cases that are, have been in a year to a year and a half. You get it. Green, six months to a year. What other color? Three months to six months. And what I told them is, when you do this, it will be infinitely apparent to you as to which cases are which. And the ones that are over there that are a year and a half that you've had are the ones that they're saying bullshit SIU, the ones that are saying the plaintiff stopped too soon and got um, 20% at fault, where they're offering you 10 cents on the dollar. They're also the cases that the plaintiff complains the most. They're also the one where the plaintiff is calling you all the time or the ones that the clients don't go to medical care or they want too much or their pains in the ass. And as you get from the year and a half to the three months, you will see that you're making most of your money on those three month cases and you're not making any money on the year and a half cases. And so they did this and they called me yesterday and I said, have you done all that? He goes, yeah, it's amazing. We had no idea that we had so many cases in our office that we've had for a year and a half. And you know what? I, those are pain in the ass cases. And I said, you would be better off waiving your fees on all of those cases and settling them and giving them to your client and getting rid of them and using that time to work on the things that are one to six month old. And they're going to start to do that. Do it in your practice. It's easy and it's really effective if you do it in like a four cornered room and you can put it up there and see what your office looks like. See what it looks like. It will surprise many of you, right? But again, those old cases that you've had sitting around are sucking the life out of your practice. Cash flow is more important than squeezing every dollar out of every case. Many times you gotta break away from old thinking and understand that maybe waiving your fee or cutting your fee to get the client what they need on a case that's going to sit in your office for months or years is actually a smart business move on your part. It allows you to take that 83 minus your age times 365 and use those days to their fullest. How many times have we spent endless hours on a case fight over $500 where you could have waived $500 of your fee, given it to the client and settled it months, years earlier. So I say all this just because I want you guys to continue to reevaluate. Right? And the last thing I'll say is cash flow. Everybody talks, Mike, you talk about cash flow. Why don't you talk about net worth? Because net worth is a ridiculous, fictitious thing. Cash flow is everything. Because remember, when you're in the hearse, there's no U-Haul. So if you have $1 more at all times when you get a bill, and every bill you get in your life, you have just a little bit more money and you can pay every bill that comes in your life. You are unreal, just you're wealthy beyond your, your dreams. And that's what cash flow is. Cash flow is when I need that money, I have enough money to pay. It is not your adjusted gross income at the end of the year. Well, this year I made $20 million, but I didn't eat from January to April. <laughs> that sucks. 
I had a lot of food at the end of the year, but I starved for about, nobody lives that way. Mike, how do you afford to do the stuff that you and Gina, how do you and Gina afford this? Because we decided and worked our way that when we needed to pay these bills, we had enough money to do it. Now you have to mix into that some planning. Obviously you got to take care of your family. You got to take care of your family and your retirement. I'm not saying always spend all your money, but we have these ideas that at some point I'm going to have $5 million in the bank and then I'm going to be happy. I'm going to have $10 million in the bank. Then I'm going to be happy. Well, when I get that plane and a $20 million, I'm going to be happy. I've done it. It does not have any linear relationship to happiness because as soon as you get it, because you think material stuff makes you happy, then you're going to want more material stuff to be happy. And I say all that because I've lived this. I've felt this stuff. And people ask me, why do you feel so content? Because I'm old enough now and I've taken my lashes long enough. I've lost tens of millions of dollars. But it's a good way to live. And so I just say that because we are a community. We're all friends. And I care about you guys. And it makes me feel good. So I want to make you feel good. So we got three minutes left. Does anybody have anything they want to say? I'm going to then call my buddy Eric Parrish and give him love that he gave to me and Gina. But anybody on Clubhouse, thank you to Erica Chavez. All right. Guys, thank you all very much. Remember, you can always reach out to me. I'm happy to help. Please indulge me and do that list. And let me know what you think. I bet it will help a lot of people. All right. And um, other than that, have a good uh, weekend. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Mike. Have a great weekend. All right. Thank you. Bye.